This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, Kaylee, we've got a lot of headlines, right, when it comes to the virus today. The ECB coming out, and they kind of indicated, uh, Christine Lagarde, that there could be some more stimulus coming because of rising infections and more lockdowns. We did have the U.S. economy bounce back, but as we heard from Yelena, you know, everybody's kind of cautioning that, yeah. you know, we're still amid the virus and still kind of waiting on some more stimulus. I want to throw out one number. The Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, it's a pretty influential modeling group. They projected a higher U.S. death toll, about 405,000 COVID-19 fatalities, and that is by February 1st. So, uh, yeah, we feel like, we definitely feel like a, a second wave here. Dr. Sabra Klein is Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Her research really focuses on how males and females differ in their immune responses to viral infection and vaccination. The Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies. Uh, Dr. Klein on the phone in Baltimore. Dr. Klein, great to have you here with Kelly and myself. So you see these virus heads that are coming out. Is it a second wave? Is it a third wave? What are your expectations for the coming months around the globe and here specifically in the United States? Oh, well, thank you. Um, I think we are in the midst of seeing the, the second wave hit, and it's it's likely going to be a, a tough time that we're going to experience as we all move indoors. Um, and, and I think the combination of moving indoors where air circulation is obviously not as good as when we can all be outdoors combined with pandemic fatigue, which has been setting in, and especially as we enter into the holidays and people want to mm-hmm. be with families, um, and we're going to see more movement of people, um, which will contribute to increasing the likelihood of exposures. Right. Well, and Sabra, I just look at Europe, countries like Germany and France going back to these restrictive measures because cases are so high. And I think back to the first wave of the virus in the spring, Europe was ahead of us here in the U.S. And then it hit us about six to eight weeks later. I mean, is that what we're heading for? I think that's what um, that's exactly what we're predicting. Yes, that we should be looking to Europe and the experiences that they are having to give us an indication of where we are headed. So is it increases in cases, increases in hospitalizations, but the death, the death count or the rise in deaths isn't as bad because we have figured out treatments uh, in terms of dealing with some of the most severe cases so that it doesn't lead to a fatality? Absolutely. So I think your interpretation is, is absolutely correct. We are seeing more cases. We're seeing more hospitalization. I think people are more well-educated, and they're seeking um, to be tested and or treated probably earlier than what we were seeing in the first wave. I think our, uh, our biggest concern is that as cases rise and as hospitalizations rise, um, while we do have a better sense going into the second wave of how to treat patients and the diversities of how we can treat patients, I mean, it's much better than it was when we, when we had to go through the shutdown in the spring. But I think the big concern is 
if we exhaust hospitals and we exceed the limits of our healthcare system, we will start to see the increases occur in fatalities because right. we just may not have the beds and, and the facilities to treat people. That's just infrastructure, right? That's infrastructure. That's exactly. Wow. Well, Sabra, you're a professor of immunology, so let's talk about the vaccine. We heard Dr. Anthony Fauci say yesterday that we could have one by January at the earliest. Does that timeline seem realistic to you? I think that timeline is absolutely realistic. I think what is going to be um, challenging for the public to um, appreciate is that while a vaccine may be available as early as January, the rollout is going to probably take um, a longer duration of time. And so who has access to the vaccine as it initially is rolled out, it's obviously going to be limited with a lot of recommendations from many um, organizations who've been thinking long and hard about this, that it would be healthcare workers, people um, at our front lines, from there moving to people who are at greatest risk, um, and then slowly but surely making its way out to the rest of us. Um, so, you know, I think I think it's going to be challenging for our communities as we hear a vaccine has been um, developed and is being rolled out, and when people don't see that coming to their neighborhood drugstore or to their primary care physician, pediatrician right away, I think there's just going to probably be a little frustration. But it's going yeah. to take some time when we talk about millions and millions of doses. Right. And if you know, these vaccines require um, special handling conditions, um, being kept at a colder temperature, things that are just going to require ensuring that, again, that infrastructure that you mentioned is in place. Sabra, I want to get to the difference between women and men, but I want to ask you first more broadly about the vaccine. Once we get one, what would you need to hear, given you study this, to be confident in taking it? So I'm already confident enough in taking it that I was able to get my husband uh, enrolled in, in one of the trials. Oh, really? So, um, Which trial? Yeah. Which trial? Yes, the Pfizer trial. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. So that's how confident. And, and he was, you know, patient 87. So he was a part of, of a, wow. you know, that number should tell you that when you're talking about tens of thousands, he was in a very early uh, mm. phase two trial doing great so what so give us some guidance though for those of us who are normal joes and janes and you know we're just seeing a ton of vaccines being developed we're hearing yeah. conflicting things we're seeing the polls you know what would I be know. your guiding words to everyone so my guiding words i think what's really tough is the public is having to watch science um, at work and in real mm -hmm. time and sometimes you know it's not all perfect and we're going to have, we do have setbacks, and that is a part of the scientific process at work. Um, I think that that's a good thing, but I think it also, for the public, creates concern, wariness, um, questions about things like safety, as well as even how effective um, these vaccines will be. Nothing is going to be put out there until right. it is completely determined, independent, 
by, you know, by the FDA in the United States and by other groups around the world to be safe as well as effective. It's so true. Think about you take a medication, you don't think twice about it, your doctor prescribed yeah. it. You, you don't go and look at like, well, what kind of trials were done and what were they, you know. Exactly. Um, you didn't see that at right. play. And at right. times it probably wasn't pretty. And at times they may have had to stop trials right. to manage an unusual occurrence. These are not unusual. What's unusual is we are having to do our work and have yeah. you and the rest of the public see us do our work in real time. And, you know, and, and, and right. it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's... So I, I want to jump in. I ju- I want, we want to jump yes. in because we are interested. We've been teasing that you have been studying the differences yes. between men and women and their immune responses. What are we yeah. seeing maybe when it is when it comes to COVID? Yeah, so when it comes to COVID, just as, as, as you announced, um, women are doing better. And this is true across diverse adult mm. ages. We're seeing this um, in people who are getting sick as young as 20 and as old to in their hundreds. Mm. Um, while for both men and women, we do see an increase in severity of COVID-19 with age. So that is not to say that women are completely in the clear. There is an increase in the likelihood of hospitalization, intensive care unit admission, as well as even death for both men and women. But in all adult ages, it's consistently about two times higher for men than women. Yeah, I mean, and it's around the world. Okay. I think that's another important point. So it cuts across maybe some of the the diversity that we might have and some of the social and cultural norms right, right. in just in our behaviors and our lifestyles, right. et cetera. Yeah, it's fascinating. And we just keep learning more and more about uh, this virus and the differences and then maybe the similarities. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Saber Klein. She's Professor of Molecular Microbiology and Immunology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. The Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, of course, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP and Bloomberg Philanthropies, on the phone in Baltimore. I just love when we keep kind of just learning more and more, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. This. this is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. And we know we heard from Dr. Anthony Fauci yesterday. He said vaccines, at least in the U.S., won't be available until January the earliest. We just talked about that with our last guest. Well, this week's cover story is all about the race for a vaccine here in the U.S. It's, of course, called Operation Warp Speed. It's the federal government's mission to accelerate development of a COVID-19 vaccine. This story, written by Bloomberg News Financial Investigation senior writer Stephanie Baker and Bloomberg News' U.S. healthcare reporter Cynthia Kuhn. Stephanie joins us on the phone from London and Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber is on the phone in Brooklyn. Uh, Joel, it's it's all about Operation Warp Speed, but it's also about a very specific company that's been involved in all of this. Yeah, that's, so you know, we, we talk about vaccines uh, a lot um, in this program, and obviously I think it's one of the things that everybody is, you know, watching in addition to, to yes. the, you know, election next week. <laughs> uh, but the, you know, obviously the, the big thing here with the vaccine is, is how, you know, how, how do we get to a viable vaccine and then how do you distribute it? And one of the big unknowns sort of in our coverage has been what role Operation Warp Speed actually plays in this. And that was sort of the mission that we put um, Stephanie and Cynthia on with this story and what we what we learned in the process is um is really told and they told the story through a company called 
uh, uh, Emergent, which is in Baltimore. That's a company I've never heard of, and yet right. they're one of the the many players that are sort of in the Operation Warp Speed ecosystem. So, so Stephanie, what what is that company, Emergent, tell us about Operation Warp Speed's approach in the vaccine development? Yes, well, you know, Operation Warp Speed turned to Emergent when they were looking for surge capacity to make vaccines. Emergent had been a supplier to the U.S. government for years, uh, making uh, vaccines against anthrax and smallpox. And so they were in a prime position to be able to sort of set that aside and start making COVID-19 vaccines and had the sort of the, the, the manufacturing suites and the technology. And it turns out that they're now, they had worked with three of the six vaccine developers that Operation Warp Speed had has publicly backed. Um, and, you know, really turned themselves into a sort of key node of production uh, for COVID vaccines and are gearing up in the process of making what will eventually be, you know, hundreds of millions of doses of uh, vaccines of various candidates. Now, obviously, there are two things here. There's one is which vaccines will get approved, and then there's manufacturing them and making sure there's enough supply when that approval does come. And I think that's what Operation Warp Speed is really focused on, is making sure that the supply chain is there, that the, the, all the manufacturers have what they need and can use, for instance, the Defense Production Act to gain priority in, in, in the supply chain to make sure that those doses are available if and when an approval does come. Right. What Something that surprised me, I don't know whether it should have, considering they are intending to have this process happen at warp speed, but they say their goal is to start delivering a vaccine within 24 hours of its approval. That's a really quick turnaround. Mm. Uh, have they succeeded in kind of doing, having that infrastructure set up for when a vaccine is ultimately approved? Well, they are trying to prepare the groundwork by doing things like building an integrated computer system to track where every dose goes. Um, they've outsourced distribution to a company um, that has historically worked with the Centers for Disease Control on vaccine distribution. But of course, this all depends on which vaccine gets approved right. uh, and when. And there's just so many uncertainties uh, around that. And you know, one of the front runners, Pfizer. Um, which is developing a vaccine together with Germany's BioNTech, um, you know, it has very challenging uh, storage requirements. It needs to be kept at minus 75 degrees Celsius, which is, I think is 112 degrees Fahrenheit. And, you know, that just creates huge challenges in terms of trying to farm those doses out um, across the country. And so I think, you know, they, they're, they're working with um, individual states to try to come up with a plan. I think some of the states have pushed back saying, you know, you guys, you haven't provided enough detail on things like storage or funding. I think there are a lot of unanswered questions. So you, you get some bullish uh, predictions from the people working within Operation Warp Speed um, and it's it's unclear until the time comes, come January, you know, whether or not they will be able to effectively farm this out. Right. Um, it is a massive challenge. 
Stephanie, one of the big numbers in the story is 18 billion, which is basically the the figure that uh, Operation War Speed has at its disposal to invest and incentivize uh, uh, the private sector and, and the pharma companies to to help basically get a vaccine out. Um, I, I'm wondering when you think about how big that number is and the logistical challenge that Operation Warp Speed is 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 ultimately facing here. Is there is there like almost an optimistic take on this? I mean, here we are, like regardless of when the vaccine comes, whether it's three months, six months, a year from now, like we've never seen anything uh, in the in this country operate at this velocity. Uh, what's your take on, on that? Yeah, you know, when I started this story, I thought. There, you know, there was a lot of questions about lack of transparency and whether or not, you know, this was um, wasted taxpayer money. But when you when you think about it, the scale of the economic fallout is so enormous, trillions of dollars, that in a way, 18 billion is very little, um, and that they ought to be throwing more money at it, and will probably have to throw more money at it in re- in reality when it gets down to the distribution. Um, you know, the states are demanding, you know, more money. Um, you know, uh, Trump has promised to provide the vaccine for free. So has uh, Joe Biden. Um, Joe Biden has announced that he would spend $25 billion on, on um, distribution, uh, uh, you know, additional $25 billion on, on the, the vaccine effort, including distribution. Um, so, you know, I actually think that it's, it is right. a bargain in a way if it, comes up with an effective vaccine, even if it's only one, if they're able to produce 300 million doses, which is the target. Hey, Stephanie, just really quick, 30 seconds. From your reporting and what you found out about Operation Warp Speed, do you feel like it's, sometimes I think we question some of the efficiencies in government or lack thereof. Do you feel like it's an efficient process just quickly? Yeah, I mean, we got, from the companies that we spoke to, they felt like they were getting the support um, that they needed, and that it, they, it was surprisingly efficient. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you know it's obviously a mixed picture depending on you know what company you're talking about. But in terms of working out supply chain glitches, I think yeah. it actually has been quite effective. Pretty cool story. Um, great stuff. It's the cover story in the magazine. Stephanie Baker, thank you so much. Financial investigation senior writer at Bloomberg News, joining us from London. Jill Weber, thank you as well. Editor at Bloomberg Business Week. You can find that story, the magazine, hitting newsstands online and on. On the Bloomberg. Carol, it is five days to go until it's actually the four U.S. Days. election. You know that. Okay, four I days. I have the official voting clock. Okay. Because then well, we're at election day. If we're playing that game, though, the election's already started. Because Fair enough. More than half of the people that voted in 2016 have already voted early. So there you go. It's pretty wild, right? It is. Like the numbers that we're seeing, I think it's over 75 million, at least at one check um, that I looked at. Uh, always look forward to talking with our next guest, Bloomberg News political contributor, Iona College professor of political science, Jeannie Zeno, is back with us on the phone from New Rochelle, New York, uh, up in Westchester. Jeannie, great to have you here with Kaylee and myself. I'm not quite sure where to start. Like, so you wake up in the morning. What is it that you want to know when it comes to the campaign trail? So good to talk to both of you. Hi. It's hard to believe, as you're just saying, <laughs> that it's less, it gets crazy. But 
Um, you know, I, I, I do as a pollster. I have to confess that I do always look at the polls. I, we're yeah. just having this discussion in class, trying to keep in mind that these are, you know, pr- based on probabilities and they're right. fraught with, you know, uncertainty at this point. But I do look at the polls. I do look at my favorite forecasters. I have to admit everybody from 538 to Larry Sabato, who comes on Bloomberg, of course, and is wonderful. And, you know, so many of the and forecasters. from UVA, might I add? Yes, UVA and Crystal Ball is great. And, of course, uh, Cook Political Report. So there's a lot of the forecasters I look at. But Did I they also, get it right last time? Um, you know, they did not necessarily okay. get it right overall. Sorry. <laughs> but, but, but the, some of them did. But, the, okay. um, but you know, the, the, that was more of, I think, a flaw of some of the state polls. But, yeah. again, you know, when you have states like Michigan, Wisconsin, um, and Pennsylvania, where the, the president won by less than 1%, you know, right. those are really hard to call. So I look at that. But of course, like, I always pay attention to what's going on in the news. And of course, the economy, like, all of these things that could sort of change something as well. It's late for there to be sort of a big changing news event. Yeah. But I do think it can have an impact. And one thing I'm curious about now is, you know, as the prospect of the Democrats taking the Senate seems to increase, does that make people, at least in the middle, unwilling to sort of give all of Washington to Democrats? I think that's a big question. Well, Jeannie, you brought up the Senate, so I want to ask you, I was looking at Real Clear Politics. Right now they see 45 seats going to Democrats, 46 to Republicans, nine are toss-ups. That feels like it really could go either way. It really does. You know, I think at this point we are thinking that it looks, you know, that the Democrats can take this, but we are not sure where some of these states are going to come down. And so, you know, I think those are going to be some of the most interesting races to watch are going to be in the Senate this year. And so, you know, some of them have been fascinating just listening to the president, you know, quickly call up Martha McSally to, you know, to speak yesterday and just as quickly dismiss her. And what's going to happen in the state in the race like Arizona, certainly what's going to happen in the state like Colorado and a state like Michigan. So there are so many, you know, North Carolina, there's so many fascinating races going on around the country that could change this thing either way at this point. For sure. And with the Senate and with the presidential race, I want to ask you how stimulus or the lack of getting a stimulus deal factors into this. Who does it help? Who does it hurt? Does it really make a difference? I think it does make a difference. I think it is, um, you know, something that... I think it's something that we heard the president, you know, wanted to do, um, and they could not get it done with the Democrats. Um, I think does that you know, hurt my, the Democrats? I think it hurts the Republicans more because mm-hmm. I think there's a tendency for the American public to blame the people who control the White House for what does and does not come out. Whether I don't think that's even quite fair, but I think we all have a tendency to say the president could have made this happen if he or she wanted to. So I do think there's a tendency for this to hurt the Republicans because they do have the Senate and the White House. Right. Um, but, I, but, you know, I think there's a lot of blame to go around, too. I think that, you know, Democrats could have done more to come to an agreement. They did not do that. So I do think the stimulus plays a role. And I think, 
as people think about, you know, the stock market and other things, the stimulus is, is you know, top on their mind in terms of how we go forward. And the, we're hearing Fauci say yesterday that we could be in the midst of this pandemic, not just through 21, but 22 before life returns to normal. Yeah. And so we are going to need a stimulus agreement out of Washington sooner rather than later. I had a conversation with the CEO and they earlier today and, and saying that COVID is going to be with us for a few years, like cases yeah. will pop up and we just have to kind of get used to it and figure out how to kind of live with it and stay safe generally. I do wonder on the early voting trends, um, is something happening in terms of a transformation of politics more than we kind of realize right now in the moment, this early voting process? Is this going to be the norm going forward? That is something I am so curious about. I do think that one of the quote-unquote silver linings, if you will, of the pandemic is that it has pushed many states to adjust um, their the way that they allow their 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 voters to vote. And I do think it, once you get people in the habit of allowing them to vote by mail and vote early, now obviously one election is not a habit, but right. once you give people that option, I think it's tougher to pull that back. So I do think we are going to see a movement in this direction. It's been coming some, for some time. People out in the West know this. You know, states like Washington and Oregon, they've been great with voting by mail, and it's increased their turnout tremendously. And so I think we start to see more of this as we go forward. And, you know, consideration of other things like should we have weekend voting, mm -hmm. um, you know, should we make voting, in other words, easier and more accessible than we do and the problem in the U.S. is always because we are a federal system, that's sort of a state-by-state -state decision. So it right. takes some time to weave, if you will, across the nation. But I think the pandemic is pushing it a bit. Jeannie, what do you make of kind of the financial fortunes or lack thereof or diminishing fortunes of the Trump ca campaign versus the Biden campaign? Yeah, I mean, it's been a fascinating story. Um, you know, he has, uh, Biden has outraised and they can now outspend the Trump campaign. Um, and that is obviously always in our system a huge benefit. I would just caution it's not determinative, of course, because Hillary Clinton spent more than Donald Trump did in 2016. And so Definitely. I think what the Trump campaign, you know, more often than not, money is going to translate into votes. Um, but, but, it, not always. And I think what the Trump campaign is hoping is that with these rallies and sort of the statements by the president and his surrogates, they are able to generate free media, if you will, in so these true. battleground states and get attention that way and not have to spend. I mean, this has been Donald Trump's mm -hmm. bread and butter, as we know. He says, you know, semi-controversial, uh, outrageous things or right. things that get attention, and he can then not spend as much as his opponent. So I don't think this is this was necessarily a plan. I don't think they wanted yeah. to be out, you know, be out fundraised, um, but this is the position they're in. So it is does bode very well for Biden, but I don't think it's determinative. But with those rallies you mentioned, Jeannie, I have to wonder how how much that really helps him reach beyond his base? Because isn't he just kind of preaching to the choir? Yeah, I agree with you. You know, they worked in 2016, but I think the problem has been he's running this campaign as if it's 2016, and he's not. For one thing, we're in the midst of a pandemic. And so there's a school of thought that those rallies actually work against him. When people turn on the TV, seniors, for instance, who he needs to vote for him, they turn on TV and see all these people close together, unmasked, as if the pandemic isn't happening right now. So, you know, I'm not certain it works for 
him to that extent. And then, of course, to your point, he is, you know, the incumbent president as opposed to the challenger. This isn't 2016, and he's got to reach independents and moderates, and I'm not so sure those rallies are going to be able to do that. But they do show that he's got energy on the ground, and there is something to say for that, you know. But I do wonder, too, we have a story uh, Jeannie, uh, Ryan Teague Beckworth, uh, Beckworth reporting how President Trump isn't heeding his aides' advice to focus on the economy. Like this, you know, if, if there's an election playbook, it's about the economy. And if you can point to, are you doing better than you were, or have you done well under my administration? You know, that will often get people to pull the lever for you when they go into the voting booth. Why is the president maybe not running on that? These, to me, are, this is the most confounding aspect of this campaign, is that he wins when it comes to the economy. Mm-hmm. People, most people think that they are better off than they were before, despite the pandemic, which is quite remarkable, and to his credit. And he can point to the economy before the pandemic and say he was the leader of a really strong economy. But he hasn't been able to sustain making that case. And any time this thing refocuses on the pandemic, which is easy to do, it turns against him. And so that, to me, is really confounding that he hasn't focused on that. And also, I think that he hasn't focused on the fact that when it comes to economic issues like regulation, taxes, the deficit, the debt, trade, all these things that we care about, jobs, that a Democratic, all-Democratic Washington is not what some Americans are going to want when they wake up in January. Yeah. And, he, you know, if he was to make that case and say, you may or may not like me, but I will hold the line as I have before, that right. would be a winning case for many people. He hasn't, you know, found the will or the ability yeah. or the willingness to make it for some reason. Right. Jeannie, we're in the home stretch. We're five days or four days, Carol, out from the election. <laughs> what can happen? Can anything happen in the next four days that is actually going to fundamentally change the trajectory of this race or have already people already made up their minds, already people have voted, therefore, you know, it's locked in at this point. You know, I, I would I would normally say, yeah, this is pretty much in the back, <laughs> <It's pretty much laughs> over, but, you know, so much seems to happen despite what we say. But, you know, right, the calendar... It is 2020 after all. It's 2020, right? It's crazy. But, you know, the calendar is getting very narrow for a big shakeup at this point. They, You know, some of this was tried with the Hunter Biden release, doesn't seem to have had much impact. So, you know, it's yeah. becoming harder. I think, sure, something could happen. It would have to be pretty major, you know, something to come out about one of the candidates that was just, you know, turned people who supported them against them. But even so, as you said, we've had so many people vote already, they can't take back their vote. So Mm -hmm. those kinds of things make it increasingly tough to turn this ship around, if you will, at this point. Does that early voting, you know, I think it tends to lean towards Democrats, but I don't know if that's true. We just got 30 seconds left here. Can you make any assumptions or maybe not? It's hard to know because just because you're a registered Democrat doesn't mean you vote Democratic. So that's something to keep in mind. All right. Good stuff as always. Jeannie, Jeannie, thank you so much. As we always say, I want to be in her poli-sci class. I just (laughs) do. I just do. Jeannie Zaino, political contributor here at Bloomberg News, professor of political science at Iona College, really a great go-to when it comes to this campaign and the election on the phone from New Rochelle, New York. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. 
It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, Carol, well, we are just about 11 minutes to the closing bell. And of course, we got a lot of big tech names, important results in just about 10, 12 minutes time. Yeah, then we're going to be crossing uh, the Bloomberg terminal fast and furiously. Let's get to the drive to the close because with us is Larry Pitkowski. He's managing partner and portfolio manager at Goodhaven Capital Management. He's back with us. He's based in Melbourne, New Jersey, and that's where we find him on the phone this Thursday. Larry, good to have you here with us. A uh, very different tone from what we got from yesterday. And we saw uh, stocks kind of picking up some momentum in the last hour or so. So we're kind of bouncing around uh, our highs of the day. I don't know. What do you focus on right now in our world? There's so many macro stories out there right now. The big ones, the election, the virus, the lack of stimulus, waiting for stimulus. Um, What's the most important to you? The most important to us, Carol, are what do we think about our companies and what are Mm -hmm. the future earnings going to be and what do we think about the future values and what price are we paying for them And that's the most critical thing. You know, in investing, uh, you have to decide if a piece of information is important and is it knowable. There's all kinds of things that are important, but they're really not knowable. And I think most of the macro stuff is not knowable. And I think it behooves an investor of any sort to just try and focus on the businesses that you own and what you think about their future earnings capabilities or future drivers of value and then try and pay an attractive price. And for us at Goodhaven, uh, we did a little buying yesterday and we haven't done any buying today and i think that is consistent uh, with the opportunistic way uh, that i try and invest money it's so funny because everything that was true yesterday is true again today the virus is still spreading there's still no stimulus there's still a lot of uncertainty uh, that's hanging in the air when it comes to the election Um, so do you expect this kind of volatility the daily ups and downs to continue I think that one should, I've written for some time that I think the nature of markets, you know, the the percentage of market activity that's electronic driven, either high frequency trading, quants, passive money, is a very high percentage. And a lot of those strategies to some extent are on autopilot. And a lot of it is sell weakness by strength. And so I think one should expect more volatility. The, The key as an investor is how do you attempt to take advantage of that, you know, for yourself or for your clients, uh, uh, of any sort. And I think you have to be prepared. I think it helps to not be leveraged. And I think you need to have some liquidity. And then I think you have to have your shopping list and have done your homework. Cause right. I don't think the volatility is going away. You know, put 20 people in a room, investment guys, gals, you name it, and, you know, put out a macro issue and you can get 10 who say one thing and 10 who say the other. I mean, I feel that way about macro. Like you can go kind of a lot of different directions that it is about knowing your companies, knowing your investments, knowing the fundamentals and when to kind of pull the lever. So Larry, let's drill down. You know, what are some of the names that are coming up on your radar? Where would you commit new money to right now? Well, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. You know, back in 1999-2000, a younger Larry Pitkowski found himself <laughs> managing money during a period where there were excesses in certain areas, and there right. were other sectors that had been kind of left behind. And at that, during that period, I happened to have found a bunch of opportunities in and around the property and casualty insurance area, which for the next eight years or so, uh, you know, proved to be a very good place 
to have investments while other sectors of the market went through a very difficult period. So ironically, here as uh, we sit in 2020, I think there are a bunch of the sector of things in and around the property and casualty insurance area, I think is an interesting place to look. And I mention that because I'm going to read you a a quote from, I'm not going to tell you the company, uh, from an earnings uh, report from the other day. A company put out a release and they said, uh, by the way, the average price increase for our, you know some of our main products, and I'm paraphrasing, was 14.5%, and the top line grew 8% uh, in some areas. So hmm. that's not a cloud-based company. That happens to be WR Berkeley, which is a property and casualty insurance company that we don't own, but uh, it's a endemic of, I think, some of the positive tailwinds happening in that industry. Now, the sector will have some very material catastrophes for Q3. You've got hurricanes, you've got, you've had terrible fires, and you still have some COVID claims. But I think at Goodhaven, the question that uh, I ask myself, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm assisted here in the portfolio by uh, Artie Kwok is where are there sectors that the market has potentially not recognized where there might still be bargains? Because there's all kinds of interesting sectors that the market has recognized them. And, you know, we own some of those, which is fine. But where might there be opportunities? I think here uh, are potential opportunities. Well, you say you're looking for a bargain. Can I assume that means you're staying away from large cap tech? Well, we own, we, you know, we have a, a material exposure to Alphabet, which we've owned for a long time, and we've made an enormous amount of money on. I and so, and I don't think it's priced in at a ridiculous level. I think it's, you know, probably like a mid twenty, uh, mid twenties PE extra cash to twenty twenty two earnings, which you know, for a company of that quality, where I think the growth will. Uh, get back to some normal level and it so dominates its world. I don't think that's a ridiculous level. There are all kinds of other sectors in and around tech where there seem to be some material excesses. I, I don't think, you know, Alphabet's one of them. And that's not a prediction about what earnings are going to be in, you know, 20 minutes. But there are plenty of obvious areas of, you know, material excesses. But the nice thing about Investing, if you're managing a you know portfolio that you know is somewhat concentrated and you have a lot of flexibilities, you don't have to go to where there are excesses. You can go instead to where you think there are opportunities. What do you say? And just got about forty seconds here. I think among your top holdings is Berkshire, and then you've got Alphabet. Like it's an interesting kind of <laughs> two um, very different companies. Yeah, and Berkshire, I feel like is going through some adjustments. Uh, you know, in terms of some of its holdings and investments, but nonetheless, two very different companies. What does that say about kind of your thinking? And just got about forty seconds here, very quickly. I think what it says about uh, my thinking, Goodhaven's thinking, is we have an eclectic approach to where we may find opportunities. I think it's a mistake to just pigeonhole oneself and to say, oh, it has to have a certain metric of some sort. We, we think Berkshire is, is now our biggest holding. It's very attractive. It has uh, material holdings in and around property and casualty insurance and reinsurance, which look to have a tailwind. And I like the evolution of the uh, right. Todd and Ted and the uh, investment portfolio. I think it's a yeah. healthy thing for the future mm-hmm. of the business. All right, Larry, take care. Good to get uh, some thoughts from you. Larry Pitkowski, Managing Partner, Portfolio Manager at Goodhaven Capital Management on the phone in Milburn, New Jersey. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Thank you.